Well, good morning, everyone. I am recording this for us this morning, and so I can be engaged in the Facebook comments while we're uh, while you're listening, and also because my internet connection here in New Jersey at my place is a little iffy. So, uh, pre-recording this for you. Um, let me begin by reading a few stories that you've probably heard before, but maybe you'll see them a little differently today. Matthew 9, 1 through 13 says, Jesus stepped into a boat. He crossed over and he came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which, which is easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or to just say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and walk home. And the man got up and he went home. And when the crowd saw this, notice it's uh, contrasted with the religious leaders. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God, which had given authority to humans. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus there is quoting Hosea, which was just read for us. And then Jesus continues, For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We hear the voice of God in the reading of these words. Thanks be to God. So we are in a sermon series where we're asking what does it look like to be the post-church church? In other words, how do we keep growing so that we can faithfully respond to both the enduring and the evolving needs of our society and not get stagnant and stuck? I really love the stories I just read to you. In them, Jesus begins by getting in trouble or healing a guy, healing a guy. Not because he reattached an arm in the wrong place or because it was gross malpractice, but because he dared to heal and forgive a person without using the prescribed process, without using the duly accredited gatekeepers. He disrupted the medical status quo and therefore the economic status quo, and even the religious status quo. And so it says, 
he had to leave town. So Jesus leaves, and he's walking along, seeing what other trouble he might find. And the trouble he finds, it says, is Matthew. See, Matthew is like uh, our tax collector in the story. He's like if the IRS hired one of your neighbors to be a debt collector for them and said, hey, make sure you squeeze the peasants for a little something extra for yourself. Matthew had completely sold his soul to the man. So it's pretty surprising that when Jesus comes upon him, he doesn't say, good day, bootlicker. Instead, he says, follow me. Now, we don't know what kind of adventure they, they went on that is lost to history. It doesn't say, I, I wish we did. I, I wish we knew what they did on their Ferris Bueller's day off. I imagine it was a great time because it culminates in a party. The story we're reading today, written by Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, just nonchalantly says, yeah, we, we had dinner. But the way the Gospel of Luke says, or tells it, it was a party. Now, I don't know how they got to that party, but they did. I love it. Uh, I also don't know how this happened, but uh, the Pharisees, the same people that that got all upset about Jesus handing out forgiveness earlier in the day, you remember them? They're also upset that Jesus is now partying with Matthew and his loser friends. This is great. First of all, we see that Jesus has been living rent-free in their heads all day long. It's winning right there. So much so that they follow him to a party they weren't invited to so they can complain that Jesus is partying with the wrong people. You, you can't please these kinds of people. I don't know what they want. They don't want Jesus to party with them because he breaks all their rules, but he can't party with the tax collectors and sinners either. Now, Jesus responds to them. He doesn't point out their logical fallacy that they've left him no one to party with. The greatest of fallacies, mind you, because it was God in the Garden of Eden who said, first, it's not good for humans to be alone, so you always need someone to party with. Instead, Jesus says to them, you call these people sinners, but I say they're just sick. You say they're hopeless, they're trash. They are the enemies of you and God. And I say they are ill. They're ill. And you know what medicine they need? If we look at the story, what medicine does Jesus give them? Companionship. Companionship. Jesus dares to party with the enemies of God. And he says, it's because they got a fever. And they need more, not cowbell, but companionship. See, every therapist and psychologist and chaplain and counselor and spiritual director that I know, every single one of them, every course and lecture and reading I've done over the past decade, and this is what I've been learning about now coming on a decade, all of them in one way or another will tell you that 
the mediating factor for spiritual and psychological healing is very often compassionate, invested, intentional companionship. And in fact, much ink has been spilled writing about what makes people whole. How do they get whole? How do they, how, how do they get psychologically and spiritually and mentally integrated and healthy? And it often comes back to a healthy, compassionate relationship between a caregiver and a care receiver. It's true between parents and kids, they can, kids can endure all kinds of hell, all kinds of atrocities. But if they have that uh, compassionate relationship, a compassionate companion with an adult in their life, their resilience remains intact and they can succeed in life. It's true between therapists and clients. It's true between friends. It's been true in my own life. What's been most healing to me on my journey is having healthy companionship with people who want my best and who call out the best in me. And Jesus said, these so-called enemies of God, they are ill and the medicine they need is companionship. So I suspect we can all get behind this message of loving enemies so far. We, we can all, this is like a warm blanket on our shoulders so far. But let me, let me unpack it a bit and bring it closer to home. Let me invite us to take that warm theological blanket I just, I just weaved together for us. Let, let's take it off of our shoulders and put it onto others' shoulders. I'll start off easy and then we'll move toward hard. It's going to be okay. Let me ask this, who are you friends with, if anyone, that our community, our church, our progressive Christian culture says you should not be friends with? Who comes to mind? Are you friends with anyone that is cancelable? Are you friends with anyone who doesn't agree with some of our core values here at Peace? Because if we want to be the post-church church, we have to be partying with those we aren't supposed to party with. I know what you're thinking. Matt, you said we were going to start easy. You're a liar. <laughs> Let me tell you about my own journey over the past year. I am a self-identified progressive Christian. I think labels are dumb, but sometimes they're helpful. And this means many things. It has to do with how I approach, understand, and interpret the Bible. It has to do with how literally I take these big metaphysical concepts like Satan or angels or God's providence and control over nature or what heaven is one day. And, and, and on a lot of those things, I'm probably more agnostic than anything because we just don't know for sure. We have some hopes, but we don't know. Um, and I like being a part of progressive Christianity where where we talk a lot about social injustices. We get out our magnifying glass and we, and we put it on them and we highlight them. And, and I like it uh, in, in this vein of Christianity because we give each other permission to think differently about God. And we say things like, all are welcome. And we try to practice that, even though I think we have some blind spots around it. 
But over the past year, I've begun to notice that I don't party enough with those that we would call tax collectors and sinners. I don't drop off the page all day with them like Jesus did with Matthew. And the next thing you see is we are having some raucous party that that the religious leaders in my tradition would be offended by. So I've been working to cultivate some of these relationships in small and selective ways, just just a bite at a time to see if I can if I can grow in these ways. For example, uh, I joined a gym run by a conservative and charismatic pastor, uh, and I and I've come to love this community, these guys, this pastor, uh, and I find myself even at times wishing I wish I could speak in tongues with them. I wish I could believe uh, in healing uh, supernaturally the way that they do. They've They've inspired me in those ways. The people there have become dear to me. I've also tried to cultivate some relationships with some people that uh, for the past seven or eight years, I really wanted to have some distance from. These are primarily white evangelical dudes. And as I reflected, I found that they had become enemies to me enemies and and I didn't like them or trust them or want to be around them. I'm not talking about your journey. I'm talking about about my journey. I know even this right here is going to going to get some pushback from people. Let me give an example. I think of a man who's really become dear to me, a member of this community, uh, Christopher. We've spoken about this and I have his permission to share this this morning. At first, he reminded me too much of the evangelical enemies in my background. And he didn't use the right lingo. And I still wonder if parts of his theology are harmful. And probably just as much as he wonders the same thing about parts of my theology being harmful. But you know what? We've been partying together. We have breakfast tacos together. I go over, we sit on his porch, we hash it out, we talk, we call and text each other from time to time just to catch up, continue, continue talking about our differences, how we see the world differently, hashing it out. And, and he's become my friend. And I looked deeper at his, his men's ministry, Romans 12, and, and I saw the guys there, they're getting free from addictions and they're becoming better dads and husbands, and just people. I mean, I still think gender stereotypes are dumb, and I still think we often over-rely on violent metaphors for men, and that becomes a crutch that keeps them from doing a lot of the vulnerability work that they need to do to become more whole in this world. But I have a deep appreciation for Christopher and for the work he's doing, and that's new for me. That's growth. Uh, yeah, that's growth. Uh, um, previously, I would have said that's gross, <laughs> but now I say that's growth for me. And what I've been able to do is move him out of that enemy category and see him as a person that I like. But I still disagree with that at some significant points, but that's growth. Plus, I think if we want to be the post-church church, church 
uh, we'd better be partying with those that we aren't supposed to. Okay, that's the easy one. That's the easy one because um, he is a person that actually wanted to be my friend. <laughs> He's a person who's actually doing incredible work to try and understand what we're passionate about in this community to walk in our shoes. He's, he's a person who's actually interested in bridging the left-right divide. So that's the easy one. Let's, let's move toward hard as we think about our enemies. There are those that we come across in life that absolutely disgust us. Disgust. Literally, they trigger a disgust response in us or they trigger a fight or flight response in us and we want to annihilate them or their character or their power or their happiness or whatever. These are people that we don't trust ourselves to be angry around because we might do things we're not proud of. These are people we consider enemies in the truest sense. I'm not talking theoretically, I'm thinking about people in my own life that it's probably best I'm not physically around them. Because like I said, I may do things I'm not proud of. You're probably already thinking of, of who this is for you, the specific person or people, and, and doing this has activated a part of your brain that isn't the rational part, it's the animal, instinctual, violent part of your brain. It's that part where enemies live, this archetypal enemy in there that makes you want to hurt and to fight or flight. Now, this morning, I am not going to ask you to forgive them. I'm not going to ask you to make these enemies into friends. We can agree that would be incredibly naive and unrealistic of me uh, and even dangerous. Um, and just not helpful because this is likely touching on some deep therapeutic work that you need to do that needs to be undertaken with a skillful professional and you need honestly divine help and healing and that's going to be a journey and a process and like you I cannot stand it when people just give basic trite teachings about forgiveness because they're so tone deaf and so ignorant of context, and so dismissive of wrongs that have been done and reparations that need to be made. So I am not asking you this morning to forgive that person that came to mind a minute ago. Instead, I wanna ask you, what would it look like to move 1% in the direction of Jesus? 1% who parties with sinners. 1% in the direction of Jesus where he says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who mistreat and persecute you. See, that is so grandiose. In my mind, that is so beautifully idealistic that it's actually easy to just dismiss and go, no freaking way. But let me ask you, what would it look like to move one percent in that direction. One percent. I think this is so hard, particularly in our society today, where we're entrenched on the extremes 
And I would say 1% would be significant progress. I suspect right now you're coming up with all kinds of reasons why you are justified to keep this person in that enemy category way over here on the extreme and to not move a bit. And to be clear, you probably have really good, valid reasons for that. These may be people who want to reduce you to nothing. These may be people who want to destroy or exploit or harm you. That's why my goal this morning is more realistic. I'm just saying let's move 1% toward Jesus' model of how the world should be. And here's the thing. 100% of this 1% can happen entirely in here. You don't have to reach out to that person. That would likely be unsafe. But what you can do this morning is to begin to shift your thinking about enemies. Here's, here's what I'm thinking. Let me lift the hood and just kind of let's talk about what's going on under this. What I'm trying to do this morning is help us grow uh, from what's been called stage three thinking to stage four thinking. In the 1980s, uh, Dr. James Fowler, professor of theology and human development at Emory University, he developed a theory in which he said that moral development, uh, particularly religious moral development, happens in six stages. I'll be very brief here because not everyone appreciates it when I nerd out, so let me, I'll, I'll just touch on three and four. Uh, Fowler said that most of us, we get stuck in our moral development at stage three. In all of his research, all of his writing, everything, he said most people, they're at stage three, which is the level that we're usually at during adolescence. <laughs> most of us are in our moral development, are teenagers, he would say. And it's during this stage, stage three, that we're developing personal identities, but we're doing that while we're still very afraid of disappointing authorities and we're afraid of inconsistencies because we still have these rigid categories of thinking that we developed during childhood that, that helped us navigate childhood. So we've still got all of that there, but we want to be individuals. He would say we, we think in dualism, something that we talk about in this community every single week, probably because, because we realize like this is third stage thinking of moral development in our church and in our society. And we want to help the community grow past that third stage where everything in life can be categorized or put into a bucket of either or good, bad, black, white, clean, unclean, holy, profane, safe, unsafe, in or out, friend or enemy. These are the buckets that we categorize people and our life experiences into. And Fowler said, and my experience has been, that most churches are developmentally full of teenagers, including their pastors. He said very few people will move from that rigid categorical bucket thinking of stage three to stage four. What is stage four? Stage four, he said, is where people leave behind simplistic, categorical thinking, and they begin to embrace continuum thinking. They leave behind their buckets they put people in, and they adopt a scale or a graph 
or a continuum. People are no longer pure evil, but we might plot their behaviors as really high in evil intent and consequence. People are no longer just good or bad, but we can mark a point along a continuum of how helpful they are to our physical, psychological, and spiritual health. Ah, okay, so you create laws that make it impossible for women to get the health care they need. I'm going to put you over here on the unhelpful side of the continuum. I usually vote against these people, regardless of the party bucket that they put themselves in. Ah, okay, so you make it really difficult for people in these zip codes to vote. I'm going to plot you over here on the graph where you get high marks for authoritarianism and high marks for destroying civil rights. Okay, noted. People in this quadrant, I usually try to get out of office. Ah, okay, you can't respect me on social media. Okay, well, my life consists of concentric circles. That's how I think about my life. And so I'm going to take you out of that inner circle that, that you've been in for a lot of my life, and I'm going to put you out here into the fifth concentric circle out. People in the fifth concentric circle, they don't get to be involved in my family's day-to-day -day life. You're not my enemy. You're not Satan. But let's be realistic. I have moved you out several concentric circles as a result, as a consequence of your behavior because you're not safe to keep in my inner circle anymore. Oh, you frequently manipulate people and circumstances for your own selfish purposes. You're going to score an 8 out of 10 on the ego needs scale. The scale that I've developed in my mind for those whose ego outweighs what, what, what's good for everyone else. And you get an 8 out of 10 on that. Uh, and that disqualifies you from being someone that I am vulnerable with because I'm usually only only vulnerable up to a 6 out of 10 on the ego scale. You're an 8 out of 10, so I'm not going to be vulnerable with you. Do you see what we're doing here? What we're doing here is we are practicing getting rid of our stage 3 categorical thinking of either good, bad, and we're moving towards stage 4 continuum thinking. We are undoing our rigid category of enemy. We are seeing people as human on a scale of illness rather than as objects that are either one thing or another. We are moving 1% closer to the vision that Jesus gave us for an abundant life. Last week, uh, I spent a few days doing some training. I'm as you know, I'm out of town. I'm up here in New Jersey right now working with the military. And I spent a few days with a psychologist from the VA who was doing some training for me and my team, my team and me. Uh, and she was sharing about her work, a big part of her work with helping soldiers heal from combat experiences where they have left those combat experiences and they either see themselves as an enemy, a pure enemy, or they see others as a pure enemy, or they see the world as an enemy, or they see God as an enemy. 
all that's possible. And she said the core of her work is helping them move from stage three to stage four. If she can just help them get out of that category thinking. She's been doing this 30 years, she said. And she said if she can get, get them to just take themselves out of the good-bad categories or take their enemies out of the good-bad categories or take God out of the good-bad category, and instead she can get them on a continuum from good to bad, healthy to unhealthy, whole to disintegrated. If she can get them to do that, then she knows she has them on a journey of healing. Because if they see themselves as just pure enemy, it is a really big request, big ask, big task to get them out of that bucket and into the bucket of friend. Instead, if they can see themselves on a continuum of friend to themselves or enemy to themselves or good or bad or you know holy or profane or whatever, if they're currently at a nine, if she can get them to see themselves as an eight in some way. And that, that right there is tremendous healing. Healing can come in incremental steps rather than one massive lift that really feels like an impossible uh, request of themselves. She knows she can get them on a journey of healing. And I have to believe that if this is helpful for combat soldiers, then maybe it can be helpful for us too. Maybe it could even help you and me with that person that came to mind earlier. Maybe we could even begin to see ourselves as existing on that continuum between good and evil, and we can get out of this trap with ourselves, and then we can do it with others as well. Continuum thinking. Let me offer just a few final thoughts as I wrap up. First of all, Thanks for listening to all this, truly. Asking you to evaluate and engage how you think about your enemies is a really big request. So thank you for doing that this morning. Second, I feel the need to remind you that our world functions at an adolescent teenage stage three level. And likely, you'll get put into their bad bucket for stepping out of categorical thinking, for having some nuance, for using continuum thinking about people and situations, and especially your enemies. I'm reminded of the Christmas Truce of 1914. Look this story up sometime. It's called the Christmas Truce of 1914, and it's when German and British troops, they stopped fighting for several days. They left their trenches. They had a smoke together. They played some soccer, and they just decided we're not fighting anymore. It's an amazing story. And then when their generals heard about this, they threatened to shoot for treason anyone who continued making peace. The general said, get back in your freaking buckets and start killing each other right now. For a moment, some people moved beyond that stage three thinking and it completely threatened the status quo system. Eyes wide open, just be aware. Truth in lending disclosure right here. So. Um, this is not easy work. It's not work that's appreciated in the world we live in. Uh, they crucified the one who taught us about this kind of work. And last, my hope for this community is that we don't get stuck, which is why I love it that we're talking about the post-church church and how do we keep growing? How do we keep moving forward? And the truth is that progressive churches are just as bad 
at small stage three thinking as those conservative churches that we are so sure are representing God wrongly. I know we do some things better. Absolutely, 100%. Um, but I'm just saying, uh, James Fowler didn't say it was only conservative churches that get stuck in stage three thinking about their themselves and their enemies. Uh, it's all of us. It's part of our society. It's part of our culture. And I would offer them that what it means to be holy is to be different and set apart. And one way we can do that is to, is to ask God to help our thinking evolve and grow. So let's keep growing. Let's stem the epidemic of enemy making in our society and the world. Let's kick the bucket and keep growing. May God help us as we do so. Amen.